Thank you for listening to the Rivers Church podcast with Pastor Andre and the Rivers team. Be sure to subscribe for a weekly dose of encouragement and inspiration to help your daily life. We pray that this message will help in whatever season of life you might be in. Good to be in the house of God, and I trust your minds are open and your hearts are ready. Today is Resurrection Sunday, and uh, we've been studying new beginnings. In fact, we've been looking at the fact in Genesis that God started in the beginning, it says, and He created, there was creation, and the first Adam was created, and sadly, Adam fell into sin, and the whole world is plunged into sin. But when we go to John's gospel, we discover something interesting. It starts the same, in the beginning. And we read about recreation, or new creation, and we read about what's called the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and didn't bring sin to all, but brought righteousness to all and a brand new beginning. If you're not sure and you're a visitor today, this head behind me represents the two sides of humanity. The first Adam who came to the garden and was perfect, but sinned and brought sin to humanity. And the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was also in the garden, who also came to a tree, but didn't eat of the tree. He rather hung on the tree and gave us righteousness and gave us a new beginning. We have a new start through Jesus Christ. What the first Adam messed up, the second Adam fixed up. And where the first Adam died, the second Adam lives. And so I want to continue today by speaking in part two of new beginnings with the second Adam. Jesus is our second Adam. Rick Warren, in speaking on the importance of the resurrection, says this. He says, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, an event occurred that permanently changed the world. Because of that event, history was split. Every time you write a date, you're using the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the focal point. I think people don't even realize when they write the date, even atheists, that they're acknowledging a moment in time where Jesus came, Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. And it was a new beginning, a brand new start for human beings, for the earth, as the second Adam came and paid for our sin and rose from the dead. I was reading an interesting commentary on phrases in the Bible and how we, you know, we talk about the first Adam, the first man, the second Adam, the second man, you know, and, and they were saying that in Genesis, when Adam sinned, a unique phrase is used. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 2, after Adam disobeyed God, it says, then the Lord God said, behold the man. He has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And then the judgment of God. So God looks at man and he says, that's what's become of man. But when we look in John's gospel at Jesus standing in front of Pilate, it says, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. The first man, look at him how he failed. Look at him how he sinned. The second man, look how righteous he is. But yet they're calling for him to be crucified. Two men, the first Adam and the second Adam, the one brings us destruction, the other one brings us life. You can continue to live like the first Adam, or you can embrace the second Adam and walk in his life and in his resurrection. Sinclair Ferguson is a Scottish theologian, and he said we are adopted into God's family 
through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, in which he paid all our obligations to sin, the law, and the devil, in whose family we once lived. Our old status lies in his tomb. A new status is ours through his resurrection. Now, for those of you in the room who might doubt the resurrection, I've spoken on it intensively over the many years, and some Easter Sundays I've spoken on the truth and the proof of the resurrection. But just to remind you, even unchurched or unsaved Jewish historians acknowledge the resurrection took place. Josephus, a Jewish historian, not a Christian, AD 37 to 95, in his book, The Jewish Antiquities, wrote about Jesus as being factual. And I'll just quote a short piece. He's talking about him and, and the disciples and so on. And then he says, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And then he ends by saying this, and the tribe of Christians so named for him are not extinct to this day. This is an unchristian, non-Christian author, historian, recording the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pretty amazing. Now I want to look at the resurrection this morning under five simple headings. Starting with number one, our faith and hope hinge on the resurrection. If we're going to have a new beginning because of the resurrection, our faith and hope hinge on the resurrection. Tim Keller said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. The resurrection changes everything, and our hope hinges on it. That's why we need to believe it. It's not a fairy tale. Jesus is not in the grave. He has risen. And now when we face death and we look death in the, in the face at funerals, we realize, no, we have a hope that goes beyond death. And Jesus Christ was raised, and he's not just another teacher that came and lived and spoke and then died. He was the Son of God who paid for our sins, died, and was has risen again. In fact, if there was no real first Adam, as some people believe, then there was no real need for Jesus, the second Adam, to even come to the earth. People believe in evolution. Well, if you believe you came from animals, then why do we need a savior to die for us if we come from frogs? Now, there was a first man, and that first man failed and sinned. The first Adam and brought sin and destruction and perversion and murder, and all those things came into the planet. And then Jesus Christ, the second Adam, comes, and he dies on the cross to pay for all those sins and to give us new life through his resurrection. Jesus is not in the grave anymore. He's alive and we thank God that we have a Savior. Now, it's important for me to read from 1 Corinthians 15 because it's about the resurrection, and it paints the picture of the two men. I want to read a few verses if you just bear with me. Paul writing says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He wasn't captured as a criminal and... and uh, Sure, they got hold of him. No, no. It was according to the scriptures that he would come and die, that he was buried, 
He, wasn't, he, didn't, he didn't faint and then wake up again. He was buried. And he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The Bible prophesied it would happen. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the twelve. But watch this. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Isn't that an interesting term? Fallen asleep. It's not like in church when you get weary and you've had too much wine the night before or you work night shift and you fall asleep. This is talking about death in a new way. And here's the thing. Imagine 500 people seeing Jesus at once. There's 3,500 people in the building today. They're around there. Imagine 500 of you all seeing Jesus at once. It's not like one person. I think, I think when I looked up at the screen, there was a shape. You know, like on Instagram, you get the clouds and people, have, they buy pies and they see Jesus in the pie and then and they, they put the pie in a showcase. No, no, no. 500 people saw Jesus raised from the dead. And those people were alive at the time. The disciples, you can go to the bank on the resurrection. It gives us hope. gives us faith. And our hope and faith hinge on the resurrection, not just on the death of Jesus. You see, if Jesus had died, we could say, well, thank you, you died. But the fact that he rose again means God was happy with his death, and that his death was payment enough. You've done the job, now you're raised. Let's read on. It goes on to say here, and it begins to explain about the first and second Adam. He says, for since death came through a man, the first Adam, the resurrection of the dead also through a man, the second Adam. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. You can see what the first man brought and what the second man brought. And uh, let me pick up again where I am. You know, I've got so much stuff written in here. It's like, and what you're trying to avoid when you're preaching is pregnant pauses. But here, behold, <laughs> if you saw my notes, you'd say, I don't know how you speak. Where did I finish? Yeah, let me pick it up again. For in the first Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. For it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, like a normal human being. The, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. So the first Adam died, but the second Adam lives. For the first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those of the earth. In other words, human beings die. And then he says, as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. Saved people live again. You get that? So the contrast between the two is quite magnificent. The first man brought death and an end. The, the second man brought life and a new beginning. And he goes on to say, it's just that we've borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, let, let, let's just pause you for a minute. Do you remember when Jesus walked into the room and the doors were closed? That's what you're going to be like one day. When, if, you, if you've put your trust in him and you, you believe that you're saved, you're going to be resurrected. You're going to have an amazing body. You'll be able to run to Santon City and shop and run home without needing to drive a car. And then you'll get home and say, is there housework to do? Jesus came through the walls, ate some fish, and Chipsy was gone again, and the fish wasn't floating in the air. That's the mystery of what I think God intended in the very beginning. You've got something to look forward to. If you've got aches and pains and ailments today, I want to tell you, it gives us hope that this is not all there is. And I'll talk about that in a moment. And then he, Paul finishes by saying this, listen, 
I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Notice that word. But we will all be changed in the flesh, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. What he's basically saying is, if you're alive when Jesus returns, and we don't know when that is, the trumpet of God will sound, and you and I are alive, our bodies will be completely transformed. Because before we even die, we will be transformed and like resurrected. And so we'll meet those who have already gone before, and their resurrection will have taken place, and we together with them will be caught up into the clouds. This is not fairy tales. This is what we live expecting. This earth is not our home. This earthly body is not all there is. Material things are not all there are because they deteriorate. We've got a heavenly vision that we can look forward to. The one brought an end. The other one brought a beginning. And we can expect a completely different future because of Jesus Christ. Paul in Romans says this, just one verse. He says, Adam was a figure of the one who was to come. But the two are not the same because God's free gift is not like Adam's sin. Adam gave you sin and death. Jesus gives you righteousness and life. And so there again, our faith and hope hinge on the resurrection. Number two, the second thing here that I want us to look at this morning is the second Adam's resurrection points to death as sleep. When Jesus was raised from the dead, we begin to see that the Bible actually points to death as sleep not as the end. In fact, whenever you go to a funeral, you need to remember that it's not the end. It's just sleep. The person in the coffin is literally sleeping. And the term sleep is used in the scriptures a lot. And I'll come to the New Testament in a moment. But when you think back in the Bible, everything in the Bible has significance. And sometimes you can read genealogies and you read things and you don't quite know. But everything in the Bible points to the New Testament and also points to Jesus. So just stay with me for a moment. Think of this. Whenever God wants to do something magnificent, he puts man to sleep. In fact, for you to get a magnificent body, you need to be put to sleep. You need to die. True? You can't just get a magnificent body. In fact, if you keep living, it just gets worse and worse. I mean, look at me, for instance. <laughs> Wrinkles, hair falling out, putting on weight. It's like, Lord Jesus, I look forward to the resurrection <laughs> where I can have a six-pack like I had when I was younger. Oh, the resurrection. See, so when God wants to do something miraculous, he puts man to sleep. So think, think like this very quickly with me. When God wanted to give Adam a bride called Eve, Adam couldn't create her himself. So God puts him to sleep. The Bible says a deep sleep, opens his side, blood flows, and his bride is brought to him. Beautiful, eh? And he says this, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And she was not just meant to be someone who hung around. She was meant to be a helpmeet. There was a role for her to play. But in order for her to come, she had to sleep. You with me? You then go to the very next person that in the scriptures is Noah. And Noah drinks wine and falls asleep. You say, well, what's the significance? Well, he's a picture of Jesus who drank the entire cup of the sins of the world and the burden that he fell asleep. But in order for that to happen, the sin of the world was paid for. So he's a picture of Jesus also a savior, the ark, and so on. You then come to Abraham, and God makes a covenant with Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do amazing things. I'm going to bring a whole nation from you, and you're nearly dead, but I'm going to give you a child. It's like, wow. Then the Bible says in Genesis 15, and a deep sleep came upon him. So in other words, God says, you can't do this. I'm going to put you to sleep. Then after that comes a son in his life. Are you all with me? 
So the sleep, and in fact, the interesting thing, it says of Abraham that a dreadful darkness came upon him. That's what happened at the cross. Do you remember that? When the Son of God died on the cross, a dreadful darkness came when God made a covenant with us. So there's all these pictures. Then Jacob, Jacob is going to become Israel from where the great nation of Israel will come. He's Abraham's grandson. And uh, when Jacob emerges and God's got a journey with him, next thing you find him sleeping on a stone. And he discovers a stairway going up to heaven with angels. It's not like our dreams. You know, your dreams at night, you're like, weird dreams. Gee, I dreamt about so-and-so. I dreamt about my boss, and he was eating dinner with us, and then I saw so-and-so. And you, and you realize those are pizza dreams. No, no, this, this was, he saw heaven. The sleep was a revelation of Jesus ascending and descending, and this ladder of heaven. And as you, you go through the Bible, you see all these sleeps. Joseph falls asleep and he gets two dreams that tell him one day he's going to be the ruler and people are going to bow down to him. They call him Zaphoth Paneth, savior of the world. And, and Pharaoh says, wherever Joseph goes, every knee must bow. How many of you know that's a picture of Jesus? Can you see the sleep thing and these pictures all point to Jesus? And, and God uses sleep in order to bring about something amazing and Miraculous. In fact, when Jesus comes along in the New Testament, he never refers to death as death. He refers to it as sleep. When he's called in Matthew 9 to come to Jairus' home and, 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 and heal his daughter, she's already dead and they're all whining and wailing. And he puts them out and he says to them, she is not dead, she's only sleeping. And the Bible says they begin to mock him because Jesus viewed death as sleep. It was a pause before the miraculous was about to happen. And he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. When Jesus comes to Mary and Martha in John's gospel and Lazarus is dead for three days, he tells them all, roll the stone away. He's only sleeping. And they say, Lord, I love the King James, by this time he stinketh. How many of you know when God wants to do the miraculous, there's sleep and there's a pause? But now we're talking about ourselves here because we're going to have a miraculous beginning. Our death will not be death anymore. It will be sleep. Notice here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul speaking to the church. He says, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Talking about his resurrection. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We should actually not use the word death. We should use the, word fallen, the phrase fallen asleep. In fact, the next time a relative passes away, we should say, I'm very sorry to let you know, but so-and-so has fallen asleep. Maybe people will be confused. Don't they? they think it dozed off in the lazy boy in the lounge. But that's the correct term. And then again in Acts 7 verse 60, the, the, the Bible talks about Stephen. He's, that they're busy throwing stones at him. And he's, he's praying. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And Luke says, when he had said this, he fell asleep. You see, death is no longer death. It's just sleep. And it's the beginning or the interlude before something miraculous happens called the resurrection. We need to view it like that as Christians. Now, if you weren't here on Friday, if you were, forgive me for repeating this, but just as Adam was put to sleep and his bride came out of his side, Jesus hung on the cross and they pierced his side and he, blood and water flowed out showing he was dead and he was in sleep, if you like, and from him came the church, his bride. We are his bride, but wait. That some of us don't understand. We think attending and listening to a message is what's important. No, we're meant to be his helpmeet and helpmeet serve. 
helpmeets give. Helpmeets build the body. And when Jesus looks at us, he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's what the New Testament calls us, the body of Christ. Not an organization, because we came from his side. The first Adam and his bride died, but the second Adam and his bride will sleep and then awaken to resurrection. I don't know if that excites you this morning, but it certainly excites me. The resurrection number three ushered in a new beginning. Before Jesus was raised from the dead, it was not something people expected, but now we can expect it, and it's a brand new beginning, especially for the Christian. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life, he has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. New beginning. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. The world will be forever different. Why? Because death is now only sleep, and on the other side is resurrection. You have to have a new view of your life and even of your own death. J.C. Ryle said this, in speaking about the death and resurrection. He said, we need not wonder that so much importance is attached to our Lord's resurrection. It is the seal and memorial stone of the great work of redemption, which he came to do. It is the crowning proof that he has paid the debt. He undertook to pay on our behalf, won the battle, he fought to deliver us from hell, and is accepted as our guarantee and are substituted by our Father in heaven. Had he never come forth from the prison of the grave, how could we ever have been sure that our ransom had been fully paid? God acknowledged that Jesus' sacrifice was enough. He has now forgiven us in him, and if we belong to Jesus, we are his bride, and we have a brand new life and a brand new beginning. You see, it's one thing to believe it in theory, what proves the res resurrection is people's changed lives. See, when you meet Christians and they've had an encounter with Jesus, they know they've forgiven, you see they're completely turned around. And there are numerous stories of changed lives. Many people in this congregation, in all the services across our campuses, would testify to having a changed life. In fact, one example I've used over the years, and I think it bears repeating today, is the story of the double heavyweight champion of the world, George Foreman. He won the world heavyweight championship twice. Uh, he was also the oldest man ever to win it at 38 when he came back 10 years later. But when he was a young man, he was an angry young man, grew up on the streets, poor, deprived, and just wanted to fight. And so boxing came naturally, and he climbed up the ranks. He fought top people and won and made a lot of money. But when he fought Muhammad Ali and was beaten, it began to break him down. He then fought a man called uh, Jimmy Young in 1977, and uh, he was defeated by him. In fact, he was so badly defeated that they carried him into the dressing room and put him on a table and lay him down. Couldn't even sit in a chair. And as he was lying there, he felt he was dying. And he started talking to the people around him. I think I'm dying. And, and, and he felt God speaking to him. And then he said to the Lord, no, I don't want to die. Uh, I want to keep boxing 
because I want to earn some more money to give you more money. Because I think he was involved in charity. And then, and then he felt the Lord say to him, I don't want your money, I want you. So he said, okay, on the table. This is all happening after this fight. And in fact, he says this. He said, in retrospect, he said, I was glad that Ali beat me and that Jimmy Young beat me because he said, you, you wouldn't want to be in around me if I'd beaten them because I would have bragged so much you would have been put off. Anyway, it humbled him. And on the table, he began to experience God working in him. Right there in the midst of all these people watching him, they were astounded. He said this to them suddenly. He said, you know what? I feel Jesus Christ is coming alive in me. Then he jumped off the table like energized and he grabbed them. He started kissing them and hugging them. And all these heavy, you know, these heavy oaks that train people to smack others. They were like. <laughs> but his life was completely transformed. And he left boxing. He went back 10 years later, but he left boxing trained to become a pastor, and he's the pastor of a church in Houston. He runs, a, he runs a youth center for deprived boys and men who've grown up like him, and he helps them. And then 10 years later, he came back, and he fought again and won again, earned a lot of money, and used it for the propagation of the gospel. But many of you would remember him from the George Foreman Grill, you know, the one where all the fat runs off with his smiling face? He's had a complete transformation. This is what he once said, and my point here, changed life through the resurrection. He once said of being saved, he said, God, this is some kind of life you've given me. You know, you don't say that when you've been a church goer. You don't say, say that when you've adopted some yoga positions or some, some religion. You say that when there's been a complete transformation in your life. You've gone from darkness to light. You were a first Adam, but now you live as a son of the second Adam. What he gave to God was an old man. What he got back from God was a new man. And you know, that's what happens. There's a new beginning through the resurrection. I read an interesting thing recently about one of the best paper factories in England. They produce the finest quality paper and what they were saying is they don't use trees to make the paper. The finest paper does not come from wood pulp. It comes from old rags. And for years and years, they have been boiling and breaking down old rags and making the finest paper in the world. Here's the thing. What goes in is not what comes out. And when you and I die, what goes in is not what will come out. What will come out will be a brand new person Resurrected and a new life. Number four, the resurrection takes the sting out of death and suffering. You know, when you know that you're going to be resurrected and you go through sickness or you face death as a family, as an individual, as a spouse, you've got something beyond to look at and it takes that pain out of it. Frederick Buchner, the author, says resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. Why? Because the worst thing that can happen to me is that I die. But actually, it's only sleep and I'll rise again. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? You see, no matter what we go through, the sting of death is not the same when you don't know Jesus. And his resurrection gives us hope for our own resurrection. Robert Flatt is an engineer who got Parkinson's disease, uh, but he took up photography, even though he shakes and so on. And he said this, 
He said, the resurrection gives my life meaning and direction and the opportunity to start over no matter my circumstances. So no matter what I'm going through, I look at his resurrection and I can keep going. I can find a new beginning for myself. I can trust him to help me make a new start in my life. And number five this morning, and this is a serious one as we begin to wrap up, the second Adam is either our savior or our judge. You see, if we don't receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, we will meet him one day as judge. If we receive him as Lord and Savior and we become born again and we have a new beginning, then we will meet him as our Savior. There will be a, there will be a smiling reception. But if we don't, the Bible warns us that God has appointed him to be our judge. Some people think they will get to heaven and there will be this imaginary scroll and Peter will roll it out and our name will be, hmm, I see you way down the list. Mm, doesn't look good. Okay, I'll let you in. No, no, no. We're going to face Jesus Christ. And whether we know him or not is going to be the key. Not our works. Not our goodness. You see, it's a free gift that Jesus paid for. And now he stands ready in heaven waiting to receive those who die. In fact, Paul puts it like this in Acts 17. He's preaching in Athens to the Greeks who are all full of philosophy and religion. And he says this, he says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands, notice that, he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn around and go in a different direction. He says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Jesus was God's second man, the second Adam, who paid for our sins, and he's now appointed him to be the judge of the whole earth. Everyone will face him. Either you'll face him as savior, and there'll be joy, or you'll face him as judge and be apprehensive of your eternal destiny. Your destiny does not depend on your works. It depends on whether you receive the gift of righteousness or not. It depends on relationship. Are you all with me? And some people, when given a gift, don't appreciate it. Have you ever given people a gift and they're like, ah, oh, thanks? I read an interesting article as I wrap up here this morning that in America, they did a survey of people who were given gift cards. You know the gift cards you get? One out of every five people doesn't use the gift card, no matter the price or the value of it. And they found out that in one year in the States, in the, in the early 2000s, I think it was 2005, the number of unused gift cards across America, $972 million. That's like the budget of South Africa <laughs> with the exchange rate. Are, are you with me? Why wouldn't you? Such value, why would you not use it? Now, here's the thing. They did the survey and asked people, what are the top four reasons why you didn't use it? They found 50% said they didn't have time. It's valuable, but I don't have time. I mean, you know, a lot of people, Christianity and Jesus, valuable, but they don't have time. They're playing golf. They're surfing. They, they're on the dam. They've got a holiday house. They've got a hobby at home, swimming in the pool, brying, and watching rugby. Or Manchester United. 37% said they didn't find anything they wanted. In other words, it didn't suit them. 14% said they lost the card, and 12% said the card expired. 
Aren't you glad that, that those cards, gift cards can expire? The gift of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago has not expired. And today we have the time to make him Lord and Savior or to come back and receive the free gift. Jesus paid for all your sins. He offers you the free gift of life, but you need to believe that he died and rose and that he's living today and that he's your Lord and Savior. You do that and you receive the gift of salvation. We hope you have been blessed and inspired by this message.